Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Gray Malk and Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics in continuity order. Uh, today, we get to continue with the X-Men, the hidden years craziness. Uh, I hope you got to join us for our last review, issues 10 and 11, with the incredible Marcus McLaurin. I am thrilled to pick up number 12 today, not only because that means I'm over halfway done with this series, <laughs> but, but also I get to welcome uh, three of my friends to the show. I'm very excited to just chill out and relax uh, with uh, Patrick Lugo, Jason Muir, and Marcus Nasso. Let me have each of you introduce yourselves. Uh, let us know your gender pronouns, where we might know you from, and the question for today, because uh, Iceman has been wandering around the Savage Land for approximately 75 issues with no memory of where he is. Uh, <laughs> have you ever had a time when you lost your memories and or perhaps blacked out? If there's alcohol in this story, it's fine. Uh, let's go over to Jason Muir first. Hi, Jason. I'm Jason Muir. He, him. I am uh, the artist and co-creator by the horns. Uh, been doing that book for a couple of years now. We're uh, almost up to issue 20. Of the series, Mr. Crazy, I'm, I'm literally drawing issue 20 as we're speaking. Um, and uh, did you want to know my story about blacking out? Yes. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you two quick stories. So in my mid-20s. Like I have 12 stories, but I'll give you two. You blacked out twice? <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, two came to mind. So uh, one time, um, we I used to do a lot of races. In my, well, I still do races, but I used to do a lot more races when I was in my 20s. And uh, there's this thing in Chicago called the Hot Chocolate Race, and it's usually mid-November. Um, where you run the race and you basically get chocolate fondue at the end, you know, and you get like marshmallows to dip it and stuff. Um, so they had made the mistake of scheduling it the day after Halloween that year. So that year, my friends and I went out for Halloween. I want to say everyone dressed up as double dare contestants. And then I made a giant paper mache nose. You remember like the nose on the show that you would pick and like green goo would come out and you pull the flag mm -hmm. out. I was walking around with this giant like three foot paper mache nose. <laughs> on my chest and i had like the green goo coming out of it but anyway um i drank too much thought i could get up the next day to run the race so i slept for probably like four hours and then the alarm goes off and i spring out of bed like let's go let's go i walk towards the bathroom and just like boom just out like i took like 10 steps and just passed out in the hallway and then like my wife's like what's going on i was like i don't know maybe i just got up with too much like too much force to uh to run the race but yeah it was weird I totally, when you started that story, you said, I used to do a lot of races. And I totally heard you say, I used to do a lot of racism. And I was like, oh, that's a bold <laughs> admission for this show. <laughs> I used to be really racist in my 20s. No, uh, yeah, <laughs> running races. I heard him of that. And then my other story is I used to work for a toy company. And um, I would have to make these fake boxes of the product. You know, so like, you know, they could see what the product would look like in shelf. So one day I'm making a box and I'm using an X-Acto knife and I cut the tip off my thumb and I went in the bathroom and I thought I could like just wash it off in the sink and like put pressure on it to assess like how bad the damage was. I don't know if it was the blood loss, but I totally passed out on the bathroom floor in the office. Ooh. I don't know how long I was out, like maybe like 10 minutes. And I'm surprised no one knocked on the door like, what's going on in there? But I just like woke up in a pool of blood. That's <laughs> it was crazy. Out. That's a terrible and story. I had to get. I did have to get stitches. Was there fondue at the end? <laughs> oh shit! Hang on, I can't hear anybody. What is going on? Hello. All better, Jason. Stop! Stop! Hello. We we will pause while there is uh, technical. <laughs> uh, sir, there's a technical difficulty. Can you hear oh, me? Okay. Boy. Yeah, I can hear you now. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Uh, let's go over to Marcus on next. <laughs> 
Yeah, hi, I'm uh, Marcus on NASA. Pronouns are he, him, and I'm the writer and co-creator of By the Horns and Voracious. I do that with Jason, who's on here, and it's the first time we've ever been on together. We've been on this show separately, so it's kind of a treat. And uh, let's see here. I've only really blacked out one time, and it happened uh, a couple years ago at the 2021 Decibel Metal and Beer Fest in Philadelphia. I'm a big metalhead. And um, so I went to the show and I was uh, hanging out outside of the mosh pit. I'm usually in the mosh pit, but I was living in Hawaii at the time. And I promised my wife that I wasn't going to get too crazy because it's quite a distance away to Philadelphia. So I'm outside the mosh pit just watching this band Dead Guy perform. And apparently somebody just came flying out of the pit and hit me in the back of the head. I never saw that person. I didn't even know what happened until a few minutes later. And I just remember coming to um, probably like maybe a minute later, two minutes, and some people were carrying me to the bar area. And that's when they told me what happened and that I went down really hard. And I ended up going to the emergency room to get checked out, which by the way, was a complete mistake because I ended up being there for nine hours. Oh, geez. So <laughs> if I had bleeding in the brain, or suffered some other injury or effect, I, I would have died just sitting there in a shitty plastic chair surrounded by drunk people and crazy people. So uh, fortunately, after nine hours, everything was okay. And I got to have a Philly cheesesteak immediately after that. So <laughs> why, I don't know why these stories are amusing. These are terrible stories. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's funny. <laughs> and, uh, well, the crazy thing... The crazy thing too is, I'm like I said, I'm always in the pit, so I've never been injured when I've gone to a metal show when I was in the pit. It's only when I was outside the pit that I got injured. So I told my <laughs> wife, I can't listen to you anymore. I got to go in. I got to be involved. Uh, and then I, someone I've been on, uh, friends with for a long time online, but first time meeting today. I'm so happy to welcome Patrick Lugo to the show. Hi, Patrick. Hi, Chad. Hi, everyone. Uh, it's such a pleasure to join this soiree. Um, I'm Patrick Lugo, he, him. Uh, you can find me online at Plugo or Plugo Arts. Um, I'm an author, illustrator, comic creator. So most recently, I've been self-publishing the graphic novel series, A Tiger's Tale, which you can kind of think of it as um, the jungle book meet, uh, learns Kung Fu. But um, what I'm most, I guess what people might recognize my work, my work most readily for is the iconic Kung Fu magazine for which I was art director for nearly three decades before the magazine stopped its uh, print publication. <laughs> so did some comics in there, but like using sequential art to teach people what we would call practical self-defense was kind of my bread and butter for many years. But um, along the way, speaking of unconsciousness, you know, I, I used to do <laughs> um, volunteer work out here in San Francisco for the Hate Ashbury Free Clinic. Uh, specifically volunteering for um, like concerts and festivals and specifically taking care of people in altered states of consciousness. <laughs> so we would um, we would talk them down or if necessary, we would hold them down. But um, so I, I get to see a lot of different kind of states of consciousness, you know, <laughs> while also <laughs> catching some some musical performances and the like. So that's kind of an interesting perspective, I think, in terms of like unconsciousness or consciousness in general. But for me personally, I'd have to go with um, 
my early 20s post-collision near-death experience where um, a young Elvis Presley walked me away from the pearly gates and, you know, sent me back to my body, which the cops found about 20 feet away from the car that I had crawled out of, thinking it was going to explode like they do in the movies. Wow. Um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of like the notable story, I'd say. Wow. You had what happened in the accident? You, wait, you had a near-death experience and saw Elvis? Yeah, like the young Elvis. That's you know? amazing. <laughs> it's, uh, I don't. I mean, I'm not even. I don't even consider myself an Elvis fan. But somehow it was. It was him who was like. I would have preferred Jack Kirby if we're talking King. Right? <laughs> but it was Elvis who were like, "No, go back." You know. Uh, and then Jason asked, "What happened in the accident?" Oh, you know, tire blows out car swerves off the road i have just enough time to turn it so that the car collides into a telephone pole wow but the engine ends up in the passenger seat rather than in the driver's seat holy shit so <laughs> yeah i mean i didn't see the car for um you know i had the car towed to my to my parents house front yard and i didn't see it until like after i was out of the hospital so i was assuming oh yeah it's a fender bender i'll get it fixed up that car was like nearly sliced in half but, um, wow, that's intense. Uh, thank you for sharing that story. I, uh, lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns. You guys know me for the show. I say this every episode. Uh, I, uh, I have not had any blackout drunk experiences. I started alcohol late in life because I grew up in like a very religious environment. So I didn't start drinking till I was like 32. And I've, I've only been drunk like three times. It's not my favorite. So I love to drink, but I don't like to drink a lot. However, I'm going to take a different side on this. I do trauma therapy for a living, and I do a lot of work with people who have repressed memories. And there's this weird thing that happens where there's like a wonder diagnosis that happens every few years. Like everybody thinks they have a disorder. And in the 90s for a while, like multiple personalities and like repressed memories were like the thing everybody thought they had because they were all over like Sally Jesse Raphael and, <laughs> and whatever was on at the time. So I still get people inside like or who come into therapy and they're like, I think I might have missing memories, but I'm not sure. And I'm like, well, if you don't have any reason to like believe that there's actually something there, there's probably not something there. It's a very rare occasion when people actually do suppress memories, but it does take place, except in early childhood when it's normal to not remember things. But there are times when your body will block memories from a trauma experience. Getting drunk is more fun. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so we're going to start today by just kind of hanging out and talking comics for a little while. Uh, I have had the pleasure of having Marcus on, on the show a few times, Jason once before, and we have talked about By the Horns. Uh, I am a huge fan of this book. I collect it. I read it with my children. It is wonderful. We have talked about it on the show a little bit. Uh, it is a feminist perspective. It is fantasy. It is epic violence. It is a wonderful. Uh, let me have Marcus on start here. Tell us a little bit about the pitch for By the Horns. Uh, sure. Yeah. Well, thank you, first of all. Really appreciate that, Chad. Yeah, when I told Marcus on, like, I want to put you on in the feature spot. He's like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, By the Horns, uh, obviously, I do it with Jason and uh, Steve Cannon, who's the the colorist, and Nicole DeAndre is the, uh, the editor. And it's basically uh, The Last Unicorn Meets Kill Bill. It's a sci-fi fantasy action series about a hunter named Elodie who wants to kill all the unicorns on the continent of Salathus for trampling her husband. But the problem is it's impossible to find unicorns. 
So Elodie just kind of starts murdering anything out there with a horn in frustration. And that monster hunting gets her kicked out of her farming village of Wayfair, uh, where she lives, because she's not helping with the community. She's just so obsessed. And um, so she sets out with her telepathic half-wolf, half-deer friend, Sajin, and they try to make one last go at tracking down unicorns and getting revenge. But they end up discovering that there's this even greater threat to the continent out there. There are these uh, wind wizards who are abducting mystical creatures and, uh, and just extracting all the magic from them for nefarious reasons. So Elodie and Sajin have to decide if they're going to um, try to stop this threat or if they just need to go on and try to kill unicorns. And um, so they end up actually teaming with a couple unicorns um, who don't know that she wants to murder them. And Elodie can rip off their horns and merge them together to form mystic weapons. I... I want to talk about book pitches in a minute. This is actually an area I wanted to take it. But when you say this book is the last unicorn meets Kill Bill, you have to find a unique way to pitch a book. And this is a very unique description. <laughs> when I pitched when I pitched my uh, my graphic novel, The Mushroom Murders, years ago, I used to tell people it's the it's like a Law and Order meets uh, Army of Darkness meets uh, Nickelodeon's Are You Afraid of the Dark? And people would be like, that's too much information. Like, <laughs> I'm up with a shorter tagline, but that's a brilliant <laughs> tagline. That's really good. Uh, oh, and, and an apt description. The seller on this book, the story is wonderful. The art is wonderful. But the character of Elodie is my absolute favorite part. Uh, she is angry. She has heart. Uh, she is a trauma survivor, but also does not apologize to anyone for anything. Uh, Jason, tell me a little bit about what it's been like for you to create these characters with Marcus on. Um, well, so we're very collaborative, you know, uh, we work on everything together. We like build the book from the ground up. So, you know, it's not just Marcus on writing the book, and just me drawing it. We have, both have a lot of input in both aspects of it. But um, yeah, I love designing the book. I mean, it we purposely designed the book to be the kind of book that um, anything goes. So it kind of gives us the freedom to create whatever, you know? So like I, I will pitch stuff to Marcus on all the time about stuff I want to draw and he'll try to work it in the book. And like the, the, it's a fantasy world where there's technology and there's different continents and they have different vibes to them. So, you know, the characters can be in like a icy tundra or they could be in a desert. It could be in like a, uh, in the last series, they go to this, um, pirate village which is on an island and it's all made out of uh, the wood from shipwrecks so you know we work pirates in there you could just work in anything you want in the book and i love that because you know you get to really do whatever you want every few issues and any kind of kooky idea we can you know mold it into something that we can work into the book and uh i mean as far as the main cast goes yeah i mean i love drawing elodie i love drawing all the main characters uh Mm. it's a very animal heavy book um elodie's sidekicks are two unicorns and uh, a wolf deer and a floating eyeball. You say, don't forget Evelyn. <laughs> yeah, don't forget Evelyn. I like how Evelyn's Jason makes it draw. sound. He makes it sound so easy, like, oh, we can put anything in the book. But a lot of times, it's like Jason's like, I want to draw pirates. I'm like, oh, pirates. How am I going to get that in the book? So you got to figure out a way way to do it. But we always figure out a way to make all the cool ideas that we have kind of fit and and work within the the framework of the story, which is which is really fun. 
I love your epic giant monsters and I love your like giant like wizard battles. They feel like they have so much consequence. It's uh it's that story where you build up a threat, but then it turns out to be like a real threat. I don't know if that makes sense. Sometimes it's a, like a big letdown, but yeah. in your book, there's always an escalating, elevated, like real journey and real threat. And it shifts quite a bit. It's uh it's a really powerful story. Thanks, you, you know, Yeah. If if I may, um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about, I mean, I took a look at you guys' work and I'm I'm so in awe, you know. And um one thing I'm I'm really gratified by is that um like right now it seems like fantasy is really coming back to comics strong, you know, like there's fantasy like we see on the movies or on TV, but like specifically in comics, I've always thought like trying to do fantasy was was a bit of a challenge because of the world building, because of like the the demands on an artist, not to mention a writer. So I was just wondering like what um what inspired you to take fantasy on like nowadays with your unique spin, but also like what what's influencing you? You know, is there anything beyond just the typical Lord of the Rings influences that everyone that comes to mind for everyone? Like what other fantasy influences are like informing yeah what you've put um, down well i'll here. say the reason we took fantasy on is because our previous book voracious was a very um like sci-fi tech heavy book and i told mark's i didn't want to draw any more spaceships or guns or anything <laughs> and it felt like <laughs> fantasy was like the the opposite of you know swords and lush landscapes and castles and interesting stuff like that although we ended up working in tech and guns anyway so kind of <laughs> that's true yeah but um I've always been a fan of fantasy stuff and I've always wanted to do a fantasy book. So yeah, and luckily Mark Sana had some fantasy. He had some germs of some fantasy ideas already in his head. So he kind of uh, like hammered it out together and came up with something. Marcus, I want to hear your thoughts here too, but I want to just point out one of the one of the reasons, I don't know if I thought of this before, but so many of these world building kind of fantasy spaces fall into the messianic trap where you have a character that's meant to you know through prophecy save the day uh bilbo baggins and harry potter and everyone in between and you guys have avoided that this is not that story which i love as well yeah i kind of don't know where it's going and that's part of the excitement from it oh yeah i appreciate that because i told jason no prophecies ever because <laughs> <laughs> i don't really like them i mean it they do work i mean a lot of my favorite fantasies have prophecies and all that of the chosen one there's a good book out now called kaya that i really like that that has that as well but um i don't like that i like it to try to really ground the characters in reality it's really um character first it's really built around loss and how elodie reacts to you know um, what happens to her husband um and all the characters kind of deal with something in their lives that they have to struggle to try to get over with like sajin is the last of his kind, you know, for all he knows, he doesn't know if there's any more of, of his uh, race out there. So um, I really try to approach it from that perspective. I, I didn't want some overarching thing where they have to, to fulfill um, some ancient right or, or prophecy, but um, yeah, as far as fantasy and, and influence, um, I mean, I think we have a lot in there that maybe we don't, think of as influence but the book actually started when i watched the 1985 movie legend i don't know if you guys remember that movie unforgettable it's such a classic right I mean, tim curry's you know evil one i mean talk about like a master class in character design i don't think i've seen that since i was 11. <laughs> yeah i love it it's like one of my favorite movies but 
the story is actually pretty bad in it. Um, it's great when you're a kid and I still love watching it now because the visuals, you know, is, are so cool, but it's kind of, it's kind of vapid, the film itself. Like Tim Curry wants to take out unicorns um, because their existence prevents him from living in total darkness, even though he's already doing that and living a pretty posh lifestyle. He's, he's given goth makeovers to Mia Sarah. I don't know what, why he's trying to like throw a wrench into the system. Everything's going good for him. So I thought, well, what if the hatred for unicorns actually made sense? And then the other thing was, well, he doesn't actually do anything with the horn. You know, he he takes the horns, but doesn't he doesn't really do anything with them. Um, it plunges the world in like darkness, I guess. But I thought, well, they're so powerful. What could you actually do with these horns? So that's kind of how it started, where I, I had questions on one of my favorite like childhood movies and thought maybe I could do a story that that would answer those questions and maybe take it in a little bit different direction. So it kind of started with ripping off the horns and merging them together to form weapons. And then I was like, I don't, I got to build something around that. Cause that's not a, a story yet. Uh, but we have a lot of video game influences, I think in there, because we do a travel map that shows all these different creatures on it. Uh, that was something Jason came up with. And now I'm writing like these tomes about each creature on it, just cause it's fun to do and make up the creatures. Um, so stuff like that, you know, when they travel to different towns, they might pick up some different weapons or find some food or they have to go to the tavern or the, the armory or the magic shop. So that's similar like video games. We kind of try to do it in a more like subtle way. I say this repeatedly on my show, but I adore hanging out with creative professionals, people who are making their passions into reality. I have two big questions I'd like to ask all three of you. And uh, Patrick, I'm going to have you go first here. Feel free to delve into a little bit more of your history and what you're passionate about here as I ask this. What is today's market like for people who want to put books out? Uh, so to make this kind of, uh, I'll, I'll give this a little context. It's never been easier to be noticed between YouTube and Twitter and Instagram and all of these other platforms. There is more connection, but there's also more competition. There is more and more people. I'm thinking back, even when I was publishing my book 10 years ago, people were going to DeviantArt and PencilJack to be noticed. And now it's uh, it's kind of like Twitter is a big hub, even though that's shifting now too. What is the current market like for you? How do you get noticed in the middle of all this? So feel free to draw upon your own histories as you, as you answer that question. But let's have Patrick go first here. Well, you know, in a word, I would say it's... um what fractalizing if i want to get all all heady um i'm part of an organization called kids comics unite and we're specifically focused on um comics and graphic novels for younger readers and that group is filled with a lot of you know artists authors there are librarians and agents as well and so the topic of how to get your pitch right yet yeah, we talked about elevator pitch you know, like we'll we'll do whole Zoom sessions just on how to perfect your elevator pitch or your pitch package, right? Your slide deck. But the one recurring theme is that like all of the major book publishers are consolidating. And then there's stuff happening on in the direct market that's all, you know, between Diamond and Lunar and, you know, a lot of uh, upheaval on that front. And then there's like crowdfunding, right? So there are these three major um, directions that, comics as a form are like splintering off so you're right it's like one of the best times to jump in and just 
you know, do the project that you want to do. It's just a question of, you know, kind of recognizing what project the the agents that are pitching to Scholastic are looking for versus the kind of project your friends and family are willing to back on a Kickstarter campaign, right? So lots of opportunity, lots of upheaval, you know. In the past couple of years, I've encountered so many new uh, creators. It's It's been amazing and inspiring because, you know, it's not just those that are putting out their books, you know, through the big two or the big three. There are so many people who are just, you know, cobbling together their pages and putting it on Kickstarter, you know. And, and then there's the, I haven't even touched, you know, talked about Webtoons or, you know, everyone else's own little, you know, website endeavor, where it's just, you know, it's, it feels like uh, what's old is new again, right? People are going to start doing newsletters are so important. You know, we've got, back in the day, it used to be forums. Now we've got Discord servers, right? It's just like, you know, such a great way to like put stuff out there, you know, like I shopped around my long in the works graphic novel project. I spent like a year just sending out query letters and trying to get it noticed. And, you know, lots of polite rejections, which is part of the process. But really, I ended up figuring out that, you know, how I could say what the story was about would be more, I'd be better able to communicate that through crowdfunding. Right. So letting people know that there's this whole like kind of miss. It's not just a superhero comic. It's talking animals and martial arts. Right. So that's kind of like a, a unique little thing that most agents didn't want. But my newsletter subscribers were really into it and they were into it enough that they were willing to, you know, share the word so that when we crowdfunded it, you know, it, it got produced which was great. You know, I didn't think it, I, I always thought I would need to find a publisher to produce it. I didn't realize that it would be actually easier to just do that myself. Mm -hmm. And that's already a huge accomplishment. I've done Kickstarter campaigns before, man, as a guy who it takes me like five years to learn a new website or a new app. I just joined Twitter for this show. And now everybody's going over to Discord. I'm like, man, I don't want to, I don't want to learn a new system. It takes me like a month to learn my new phone. Like, where's the buttons? <laughs> God, I sound like an old, old man. <laughs> uh, the uh, the same question over uh, over to Marcus on next. Yeah, how do you embark yourself? Wow, it's so many different facets. So, I mean, when Jason and I first started, uh, with Voracious, you know, we, I made a list of every single comic book, uh, store I could find and just sent out packets to them. And Jason and I, we would drive around to places here in Chicago, uh, just to let them know about our book and, you know, send stuff out to websites and everything like that, um, to try to get them to do reviews and, um, you know, when we pitched the book, we actually, we got the publisher pretty, pretty quickly. So, um, and it is tough. It's hard to, to break into the industry because especially now, and that was years ago now that we did that book, but now there's so many books. I, I would say there's too many books actually. So it's even more difficult to, uh, to just get in there and, and be noticed, especially when a lot of, um, some of the bigger award sites and, and comic book sites and stuff like that, they, they go for like the kind of the same people who have been producing books over and over um, for the bigger uh, companies. But um, yeah, I think Kickstarter and crowdfunding is where comics is probably going to go. 
um, for the future because you just you're going to make more money there. You, a lot of the smaller like B publishers or C publishers, they don't have the money to pay you. You have to do everything up front yourself. And so going to Kickstarter and and actually being able to make some money for what you're doing because you put so much hard work into it is great. You know, that's why we did our Kickstarter uh, not too long ago for the, for the hardcover uh, to try to make some money so that we can keep doing the book. And, um, you know, and now publishers are actually picking up Kickstarter books after the fact. That didn't, that wasn't always the case before. If you did a Kickstarter, they didn't really want to touch it. But now it's like, okay, there's this secondary market. You can do it for Kickstarter and you might have 350 backers, but there's thousands of other people who wouldn't know about it or could enjoy that. And then um, the other thing I would say um, before we pass over to Jason is that it's just the community of comics. It's not something, I'm more of like a loner, uh, to be honest with you. But being online, Jason and I spend a lot of time marketing. We create uh, just promos and videos and um we're always doing social media stuff but even more important than that i think is just the community who is just so invested in indie comics and if you get to know these people and uh you know their work then everybody kind of shares that out and then so our fans might gravitate over to, to somebody else's fans and and, and vice versa um, and it's the same thing with some of these comic sites that really promote a lot of indie works um i send them you know copies of the the book every issue and some of these sites have just gotten so into to buy the horns and just have really been great advocates for for our book and the work that we do so building uh building relationships on this show has been so special for me but i also start to realize how small the community is it's it's a huge community but everybody knows everybody everybody here in this room knows other people that i've met through this show that i also really care about and when we build those those relationships that's a huge part of it but we all have stories too right uh peter sanderson said i used to write letters into the company and then the secretary at the company called and said hey come work with us or you look at like stephanie williams who i asked that question she started creating a place for herself on twitter until she got noticed by professionals uh some people are in the trenches for years before they get noticed uh jason what are your some of your thoughts on this um yeah i mean it was interesting you saying that there's never been a better time to get your work out there but I don't know if it necessarily translates into selling books, you know, because the, the fact that there's so much amazing art online, um, it's just like an ocean of it, you know, and people skim through Twitter or Instagram and they see a cool post and they like it or they may even comment on it. But it doesn't mean they're going to that person's page and looking at their stuff and buying their book. And, you know, it doesn't. So, you know, and we have we have amazing fans. We have a very loyal fan base and it's awesome. And, you know, I'll put buy the horns artwork up there or even just fan drawings you know i'll draw a picture of whatever some marvel character and you know i'll get a bunch of likes but that doesn't translate into anything you know and that's what the modern economy is it's all just like uh everyone's hustling and that's the other thing too a lot of these people a lot of your fellow artists are out there creating amazing stuff we can't all buy each other's stuff you know <laughs> we, we can't be we try to support each other as best we can but yeah and comics is such a small niche market but it's like mark son said like Turn to crowdfunding is a is a good thing. I mean, we our book comes out monthly through Scout, you know, and it's awesome. And we get to be in comic shops and they help us promote the book. And, you know, it, it establishes the book as, you know, a quote unquote real book, you know, because it, it shows up in the Diamond catalog or the Lunar catalog. Um, but it doesn't necessarily translate into huge sales or it's a huge money making opportunity. And like you said, we had to turn to crowdfunding to just get some, you know, some additional support on the book. 
And crowdfunding is great because one of the things we realize is, you know, we did a we did a hardcover for By the Horns, and it's essentially the first volume, which is out there, but repackaged in a in a really nice hardcover format. We we put some bonus extras in the back, you know, to make it worth pe- worth people's while to pick it up. But we realized that there's a whole separate comic market that's just buying the books through Kickstarter. Like they might not even go into a shop. They they browse Kickstarter for cool projects. And, you know, they like buying a book because not only does the book seem interesting, but like, hey, it comes with like a bunch of patches or like, oh, this book is, you know, making plush toys to go along with it. And, and like, that's the way they interact with their comics. So there's a, like, it, it's like music too. Like the world's so there are everything's small niches, you know, there's not just like one, one book to rule them all one massive, uh, you know, musical artist, you know, aside from like a Taylor Swift, but it's just a bunch of uh, small projects that are hustling and they have loyal fan bases. And you just got to kind of find that fan base, whether it's, you know, people through the shop, people through Kickstarter, uh, people through digital, or all those things combined, you know, you might have separate audiences that buy your book and you're supported multiple ways. Yeah. So it's it's great that you can get your stuff out there, you can get your stuff seen, but it's it's um getting over that hump where people want to engage and they want to support your work. And you know, the other thing too is like we've noticed, you know, engaging with fans, whether it's at shows, whether online, um, you know, sometimes you'll make a fan for life and they'll they'll buy anything you put out. And it's amazing. Like you you feel like they really support your work and it's because you've built a relationship with them. And Marks and I both make it a point to like anytime someone says they like the book or they read the book. I mean, even if they said they didn't like the book, which no one's really said that yet, but even if they said they didn't like the book, <laughs> I would thank them for buying it and say how much I appreciate it. Cause I do, I appreciate it. You know, let me, uh, let me ask a different question. And again, this is for all three of you. What are your professional aspirations? <laughs> all right, I'll go hey, the rent. <laughs> Pregnant I was waiting for Chad to pick somebody there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I guess I'll go first. Uh, my professional aspirations. I mean, I love doing by the horns. It, it's amazing. Like we said, we built the book to be the book we want to write and the book we want to draw. I, I have a blast doing it. Um, but professionally, you know, I would like to work on bigger projects only for the idea of a getting paid and b um, getting a higher profile. And it'd be nice if I could bring that higher profile back to by the horns. You know, somebody, re- you know, say I get a book at a big two publisher. Um, and they like my artwork and they're like, what did this guy do before this? And they checks out by the horns and, you know, uh, build our fan base up and maybe they even go back and check out voracious. So I get, I mean, my career aspirations are to keep doing by the horns, but also kind of at least raise my profile enough to a, uh, make a livable income on this and B, um, build the fan base. Uh, while you're on that, Jason, do you want to talk about the experience you just came back from? Uh, yeah. So <laughs> this is a wild story. Um, I was asked by Marvel uh, to participate in this workshop that was being held at um, the Disneyland Paris Resort because they have a a hotel out there called the Art of Marvel, which is a really cool hotel because it um, really spotlights the art of Marvel. You know, you go through the hotel and there's giant blown up images of, you know, something that Olivia Coipel drew or, you know, um, just like huge things in the lo- there's a video playing in the lobby of just someone drawing constantly behind them. Tons of like Alex Ross pieces, like anyone that's worked for Marvel over the the sixty years. Um, and so it's not just you know it's about the movies, of course, but really spotlighting the artwork. So they invited uh, myself and four other artists from around the world that they they told us when they got that that they considered us sort of up and coming artists that they um uh, that they thought uh, would benefit from 
Um, the, the way they phrased it was that a lot of artists will submit their portfolios and um, they'll get tips, you know, how to improve. And like one day they'll get to that point that, you know, they'll work for Marvel. And they kind of had this idea that like, what if we had a workshop where, you know, we spent a couple days um, sort of working on the things that we thought would get them over that hump to be, you know, Marvel artists pretty much, you know, like what, what uh, you know, what was that middle stage? Um, so uh, it was five of us. Uh, there was two people from Italy, one from Spain and one from the UK. We, we didn't really know anything about the program. Marvel kind of emailed us maybe a week before and said, hey, do you want to participate in this? Um, details to follow. So I just packed up all my art supplies and flew out to France. And uh, I lived in the hotel for about a week and a half. And um, basically every day we had little workshops with um, established artists. So um, it was... Um, uh, Giuseppe Kamakoli, it was Nacha, Natasha Buen, uh, Natasha Bustos, um, Olivia Coipel, and Peach Momoko. Um, and every day would be a different teacher, and they kind of teach us a different aspect of cartooning. And then uh, we'd have a little mini project every day, and we have about four hours to complete the project. And sometimes it would be drawn an entire comic page in about four hours, which is, you know, for something that most people takes a full day. Um, it was literally like being on a reality show, complete with like people filming us. There was people taking photos and people taking video. And then we present our project at the end of the day. And then at the end of the week, we had a final project where we would have to um, write and draw a three-page story of anything we wanted. But um, it kind of had to feature some quiet moments, some action. Um, and be a whole thing. We had 24 hours to do it. And, you know, they told us definitely like, they're like, don't not eat, don't not sleep. Definitely do those things. But you have 24 hours to do this project. And of course, you want to do your best. Um, so we hustled on that. And then at the end of the whole thing, um, the hotel chose some select work of ours and they um, put it in the gallery there. And they took one page, they'd select one page from each artist and blew it up real big. It's like five feet tall. And uh, it's going to be on display there at least for the next like three or four months, which is amazing. And it was an incredible experience. Um, a, getting to meet all the artists. Um, There's also Disney Imagineers there and I'm a big theme park fan. So I asked them 10 billion questions about the parks and there's a certain point where I said, am I annoying you? And uh, one Imagineer is like, no, I love talking about this stuff. I was like, okay, okay, good, good. It's like when and, someone uh, asked me about Skull. the X-Men, I'm like, I'm ready to go. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. They think like, you don't want to talk about this, but like, I'm waiting for someone to talk to me about this. Um, and C.B. Sabalski, the editor-in-chief was there and he kind of led the program too. So it was fun getting to know him better and, um, yeah, it was an amazing experience. It was incredible. It was it was a, challenging for sure, but it was incredible. What a cool, cool thing. I'm so happy for you. And I hope this leads to some big announcements for you in the near future, my friend. Uh, Patrick, do you want to say, take the same question? What are some of your aspirations? Oh, what Jason said. Um, <laughs> I I feel like, um, you know, when I look at like the, the things that I've had in my bucket list, you know, and I've checked the many little things off, but I'm always thinking like, wouldn't it be cool to, to scale it up? You know, like I, so I, I'm often thinking about like, you know, I had some modest success with my crowdfunded graphic novels, but I'd like to see more people reading them. Right. So it's just that, that concept of what I feel like what I'm doing is pretty good, but I'd like to improve my game in terms of the quality of the art I produce and the quality of the writing I produce, but also the, the quality of my ability to get those things out there. You know, I've really kind of learned that, you know, if I don't do it, if I don't step up to be the champion for my work, then it's going to be that much harder for anyone else to champion my work. So I, I'm really striving to just get better at communicating the values that inform, you know, the work that I choose to do and the opportunities, you know, that that come my way. 
Absolutely. Thank you. And then Jason. Uh, I'm sorry. And then Marcus on. Oh, Jason can go again. That's not what I meant. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with Jason. I, um, you know, I feel like I've already accomplished it, you know, just by doing the, the comics that I'm doing, like I, every single comic that, um, I create or create with, with Jason or or somebody else, you know, it's just, um, it's like a dream, right? It's like, I, it could be the last thing I do. And I'm just very thankful that I get to do it. And, um, you know, I'm really happy with the stories that I've come up with. I just, I feel they're really unique and, and interesting. And, and, and I hope I get to keep doing that. I guess that would be the aspiration and to get to another level where, you know, you could make more money and just be able to do more work, I guess, is something that, uh, that I would like. Um, but I mean, even if it stayed at this level, I'd still be pretty happy, uh, just because I get to write comics. You know, I get to work with Jason. It's like, it's so much fun. Um, but it is a lot of work. That's the thing. It's like such a, a lot of work and there's just not a lot of publishers that give you that money up front. And uh, I feel like um, people who do comics, you just don't get, you just don't get paid enough for, for what we do, for all the imagination and effort. And like, I guess the stress of, of doing it, you know, Um so I would like to have that be a little bit a bit easier for for everybody in the industry. To be honest with you, I'll, I'll take just, this. Oh, go ahead. Can I just say one thing that I, I just feel like I've learned how important it is that we as creators um, take even the smallest wins that come our way and really just like take that moment to enjoy. You know, like Jason, enjoy not just the fact that you had this awesome experience, but just the fact that you, amongst how many others you know were chosen right all of those little victories because sometimes it's not necessarily the paycheck but it's that like acknowledgement or it's that 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 boost that kind of serves us you know as creatives right that nourishment and so so much like india so sorry go ahead ahead. i also just want to say that one feather like one example of a feather in my cap is the chance to talk about how the x-men you know influenced me as a child and influenced me as an artist you know and to be able to talk about that here right with fellow aficionados like that's a feather in the cap that's an example of my whole aspiration just ticking up one more notch i do uh sure, I do getting therapy. asked to be on podcasts that's always a fun thing <laughs> i do therapy. I, I do therapy for a living and i work with a lot of artists and there's a lot of ego that's associated with art and this show has become a lot of things one of them is sometimes a therapeutic reflective space because that's who i am on my core uh but <laughs> there's an interesting thing because i think for me i'm an artist as well i like to write i like to produce and over the last several years what i've learned is my spirituality is largely an association with what i'm producing i feel really good when i'm putting things together and i feel really stuck and stagnant when i'm not so I've done a book and I've done a comic and I've done a documentary and I've done a blog. And in all of those things, when I'm actively engaging, I feel good. Then I eventually hit a wall where I think this thing that I'm producing only hit this audience. It only hit this many people. Uh, For example, the documentary I worked my fucking ass off on for so many years finally got produced during COVID. And so all the film festival circuit that it should have gone to was then canceled and it ended up online, which I'm thrilled about because I told the story. But you regularly run into this challenge. 
I see people who are actors, as an example, who you put out one thing and you got your big break, and then the next movie you try as a flop, right? And uh, there's this there's this game we have to play. There's this industry we are in the middle of. So I think for a lot of people who listen to this show, we're talking about industry. We're also talking about like the artist or the 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 creator's dream sometimes, which is where this goes. And everyone who has ever worked on the X Men or at Marvel in these ever shifting companies, it's a big piece of this. Uh, I think uh, I, I one of you I can't remember talked about how the big industries, the big fish are eating up the little fish, right? My husband and I a couple of years ago went on a, a wine tour in Sonoma. And they were telling us, like, all of the world's vineyards, which take decades to establish, have literally all been bought out by, like, four companies. There's these thousands and thousands of vineyards, but they're all kind of owned by four people. And there's no room to plant any more vineyards. So now there's this monopolization on this one space. It's not that way with art. There's always room for more art. And there's always space to put it out there. It's not a finite amount of space. If you have stories to tell, tell your stories, but also be prepared for the professional hurdles you have to hop over along the way because you've got to have a pretty strong ego and you got to do it because you love it and not because you expect a particular result because I promise you you will have fallbacks and you will question what you are doing sometimes especially when you have to pay to be part of something that you're hoping to be recognized for right most singers do not stand at the gas station and sing outside and then get noticed by a big record producer <laughs> they have to like really push themselves to get out there so yeah. it's a, it's an interesting thing uh, we can spend a lot of time on this, and I hope all of your sign-ups are firing, <laughs> but we're going to take this opportunity to transition into some professional X-Men reviews. <laughs> we get to call it professional because I'm like almost at 200 episodes now, so I feel like I know what I'm doing here. Uh, but what a joyful conversation, you guys. Thank you all for sharing. Uh, and make sure you're checking out, we'll, we'll plug at the end, but make sure you're checking out the work of all three of these incredible gentlemen that are talking to us here. They're doing really wonderful things. And uh, names up on the rise, I hope, as well. I hope to see your names on Xbooks and other things in the future. Uh, let me ask the blanket question before we introduce this book. Were any of you familiar with X-Men The Hidden Years prior to this? We're going to be covering X-Men The Hidden Years number 12. This is a wild series. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I knew about it. I, I think I've read a couple of them here and there, but uh, I had not read this particular one. Yeah, I was aware of John Burns. I mean, John Byrne was a you know influence. I met him when I was like a little boy artist, you know, and I had my little portfolio, which was uh, just cut out pictures in a photo album. And I asked him to sign it. And he just pretty much took up the whole inside cover with his signature. And I was blown away. So by the time the X-Men Hidden Years kind of surfaced, I was kind of aware of his career and his like, his thoughts about what what he wanted to do with the series. I hadn't read it until I had the reason to for this podcast, but you know, I kind of knew what was going on and I would check it out, check out the covers on the newsstand. Jason, how about you? Yeah. Yeah, I think this book was coming out when I was working in a comic shop. So I started reading comics pretty regularly right around like Jim Lee X-Men number one. And I I knew John Byrne was an older creator, but I just never had read anything. So to me, he was always like Oh yeah, the old guy that used to do X Men before, like all these cool guys came on to X Men. Um, and I remember when the Hidden Years was coming out, I, I felt like, oh man, this old guy's back doing the X Men again. I guess he's doing his <laughs> old guy X Men stories. In 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 the past few years, I've come to appreciate uh, that run of the X Men and John Byrne's work in particular. I uh, during the pandemic when like comics was like shut down for those like two months, 
I did a deep dive on tons of stuff. And one of the things I read was um, his She-Hulk run and I loved it. It was so good. And I read a ton of his Claremont uh, X-Men issues. And so in, in the last couple of years, I've come to appreciate him more, you know, for, I appreciate his work more rather than like the old guy that was coming back to just do his old guy stories again. So we're going to cover X-Men The Hidden Years number 12 today, and I'll do a quick summary for those that have not heard the previous episode reviews on this, but we've got 1 through 11 up on my show already. Go back and listen if you would like to read along with us. Uh, We are very aware of the controversy and struggle around some of John Byrne's public statements and his relationship with other creators, but we're not going to spend time on that today. Uh, This is John Byrne's love letter to Neil Adams and Tom Palmer, and Tom Palmer is the inker on this book over John Byrne's writing, uh, penciling, and lettering. Uh, Gregory Wright, who is a good friend of mine now, uh, is the colorist on this book. And Jason Liebig, who's been on my show, is the editor. Uh, This book comes out in November of the year 2000, which is the month before I finished my Mormon mission. If anyone wants to follow my own personal (laughs) comic book journey along the way, there are a lot of characters, I think over 20 in this book. And there are about four big storylines happening at the same time. And one of the tropes of the hidden years is you'll get two or three pages on one story, and then it moves to another story, and then another, and then another. And it's a little bit exhausting when we're doing these issue-by-issue reviews. So a lot of the stories we're going to talk about are carrying over from last time and will carry into next time. But this is a longer book. It is an anniversary issue number 12. And uh, it almost could have been the end of this series, except they left some uh, plot lines dangling. But we do get some really cool stuff with Magneto and Sauron, especially. So we'll talk about that. To give a quick favorite. I love Sauron. I really do. He's so camp and I love him. Uh, so we're going to talk about uh, the the stories that are building into this and then we'll delve into the issue. Iceman has amnesia because he overused his powers and he's been wandering around the savage land and he was found by Carl Lycos. And Lycos has been living in a, this is the human version of Sauron. He's been living in a Nazi base and we're going to learn here, apparently there were some old Nazis trying to tap into geothermal energy because there's machines under this base, apparently. And Sauron maybe wants to use these machines for reasons. I don't know exactly what's happening. But we've been talking about, uh, you know, Iceman's amnesiac hookup in the jungle in the Nazi cabin uh, for uh, several episodes in a row now, which is fun. Uh, at the end of last issue, Lycos had been attacked by Magneto, and then that transferred him turning into Sauron and then feeding on Iceman's energy. So this issue is going to take a few steps back from there and tell us what actually happened because it was kind of a rush ending. Also, Amphibious, the little Savage Land mutate frog guy, found Magneto, who was not dead in the Savage Land. Storyline number two involves Cyclops, Marvel Girl, and Candy Southern, who is wearing Marvel Girl's green dress and going by Marvel Girl. And they've been captured by a mutant named Stefan Kruger, who looks a lot like uh, uh, that guy from uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, whose name I keep forgetting. <laughs> uh, oh, goodness, it's lost to me. Uh, and he has the power to cancel or manipulate the mutant powers of others. He previously captured Angel and Avia. Well, we're not going to talk about Avia today. And sold them to the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, uh, which consists of Blob, Mastermind, and Eunice the Untouchable. And they are on a boat ready to be delivered because he has new captives. <gasps> okay, third story is Professor X and Beast are investigating a new mutant named Ashley Martin, who is a child that can make objects come to life. So she's like kind of a creepy little girl who like makes her dolls talk. And she took control of a sentinel who acted up. And her mom, Terry, is there who is a human. And now Ashley is pissed because they broke her sentinel. Uh, So that's all that you need. There's a lot of stories. There's a lot of characters. Uh, Thank you for going along on this crazy ride with us. 
<laughs> Does any of my guests have comments on what it was like to jump into all these moving storylines? <laughs> I'm thankful for that recap. <laughs> I did not. Okay, I was wondering who a Marvel girl was. Something was up there. That's Angel's old girlfriend, Candy Southern, who yes. died in the 90s, and I love her. Yes, makes sense now. Uh, I assume you're familiar with the Cerebro podcast, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Big Candy Southern fans on the. Uh, as we record podcast. this, the next episode of Cerebro coming out after this is featuring me, and I'm so excited. Oh, okay. <laughs> nice. Now that you've given that recap, Chad, I feel like I need to go back and read this yeah. and then come back to the podcast. I mean, f- feel free to read along and listen along. We have lots to say. <laughs> you know, the, the hidden years are kind of special to me in a weird way, right? Because um, one of my precious items when I was a little boy was some comics that I kind of borrowed from my older brother never gave him back um so that i could trace to learn how to draw and read and one of them was like x-men 77 which was one a reprint issue of uh the mimic fighting the super adaptoid mind-blowing issue oh bobby drake also does uh like figure skating in that one too yes (laughs) he's so gay (laughs) um but so so like that whole lore of that time period where the x-men was just reprints just always had a special spot in my imagination growing up because you know when i could i found whatever neil adams reprints that i could find and was always just trying to cobble together like that mystical time period and then john Byrne shined a light on it but So I'm going to try to cover the continuity dense stuff, but let's talk about this cover really quickly. I love when we get to mash the toys and the toy box together. So we have a giant image of Magneto in his more purple and red early 70s costume with like the raised metallic collar and kind of a sleeker helmet. And he's fighting Sauron with the X-Men in the background, uh, specifically uh, Lorna Havoc and Iceman. And I love when you get to mash this up together. You look at a cover that has like the Red Skull fighting Dormammu and I'm like, yes, like this is great. Uh, Do you guys have thoughts on this cover? It's beautiful. I mean, those are some iconic characters. I mean, I have a lot of questions. I've always had a lot of questions about that particular costume choice. (laughs) Yeah. But... It's much better than the one that came before. <laughs> it almost was the one before like... the deep V. No, that's uh, later. The, the one before is the yellow creator version of his costume. He's wearing like a uh, yellow bag with like jetpack guns on the side. It's weird. Uh, I, mean, I thought he stole like Apocalypse's uh, neck collar for a second. There. It kind of looks like it. Yeah. You know, yeah, like there's the almost like there's an A there too. I mean, it's was this weird. his like midlife crisis? These costume changes, <laughs> like. What was going on? That, that's now, just the one thing that the hidden, it, years, was... the hidden Years is set in the X-Men after the during the reprint run and before Magneto's next appearance in the early 70s, right? So Magneto disappears in the Savage Land, and then he next shows up in Fantastic Four number 102, which I will cover on my show later this year. And this issue specifically bridges those two appearances. It ends, we'll talk, we'll get there, but this issue ends with the setup to Fantastic Four number 102, which was printed in 1971, I think. Uh, so it's kind of fun to see him in that costume that was de- de- that mm-hmm. debuted back then. I love the way the burn uh, does uh, Sauron. And I also really, really like how he does Havoc because he does that circle energy and he'll just put it anywhere <laughs> at him. It's not in the middle. It could just be. It's always flat. It's yes. just flat. It's, such it's so ridiculous. Choice. It's always facing <laughs> yeah, <it's> like, camera. <laughs> yes. He'll be walking and it will just be taking up his whole body sideways. It doesn't yeah. make any sense. He's the only one I think who's ever done that, right? 
So, uh, no, 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 that happens with more more than one artist, but Byrne specifically is known for doing that with Havoc. So Magneto uh, debuted in The Hidden Years. He was the first villain they faced, and then he was lost, and now he's found. That's, again, that's all we need. Uh, let me let me kind of run through the first few pages of this. I'm going to try to cover the disparaging plot lines that are all over, and then uh, you guys can focus on the more uh, story stuff, which is more fun. Uh, page one is a full a full page splash of Magneto's helmet, which is kind of fun. It's been missing, and now he and Amphibious have found it. Uh, Bobby is wandering around the Savage Land, and he's wondering why his like hookup with this guy in a Nazi hut uh, like went weird. And he's like, "Oh, I never knew that guy's name." And then he asks Carl Lycos, like, "What's your name?" And Carl's like, "It's Joe Smith." Uh, and it, okay. <laughs> if you've ever been on a hookup on Grinder and you're queer and then the guy gives you a fake name, again, run. The, if the Nazi skeletons were not enough, Bobby, get out of there. This is not a safe space for you. Uh, then we see Havoc and Lorna. Apparently, they've dropped Kesar off and they are flying around in this like little ship in the Savage Land that they've been in, in for like five issues. And he calls her Magnetrix again, even though she's literally said, like, stop it, Alex, leave me alone. He calls her Magnetrix and she's like, let it go. You got your name from a supervillain, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> which is entirely true. Uh, and then we're already six characters in, but we have to move on to a different episode where we see Xavier and Beast are fighting Ashley Martin. Well, not fighting, but they they just destroyed the Sentinel with Ashley Martin and she is pissed. And so she lashes out and makes Xavier wheelchair, Xavier's wheelchair explode. And that's all we see of them. We'll get more of that next issue. Uh, and then we are on a big boat. And Stefan Kruger, we talked about this and the sensitivity of it. He has surrounded himself with a bunch of flunkies who are also like freaks from a circus show. And he calls them freaks. We're just going to call them Stefan's gang. And they're like two-headed guy and like little guy and like guy with seal fins. Uh, we Again, we talked a lot about this with Marcus McLaurin. So go back and hear our previous uh, episode review for more on these guys and the sensitivity around them. But Candy Southern escapes because she knocks the two heads of the two-headed man together. And then Kruger's hanging out with a little guy named Blunt, who's a little person. And they meet with the Brotherhood. And Mastermind and Eunice the Untouchable are there. And they comment on how Blob is back on the shore because he crashes through the bottom of most boats, which is such a mean thing to say, especially from his boy boyfriend, Eunice the Untouchable. Uh, they're there to pick up Cyclops and Jean because they want to buy some more X-Men from Kruger. But Candy smashes a metal hook into Kruger's head and knocks him out. Uh, Gene and Cyclops are already knocked out. And Candy tries to get away, but Mastermind traps her in an illusion. Uh, and then he's pissed. As Mastermind's like really flexing here. He like makes Eunice believe he's covered in snakes. And then he previously bought Angel and Avia, but apparently he just used an illusion of money to do it. And now he's given... Kruger more money, but it's also an illusion. This will come back to bite the Brotherhood in a couple of issues. That is a quick summary of the first 10 pages where we fast. can we can spend the rest of our time on the more fun part of this issue, which is all the Savage Land crazy. But do you guys have any thoughts on uh, these recurring, like, here's where all the X-Men are scenes that we just saw? Oh, everybody's muted. Uh, I mean, it was uh, I'm like, who is this Marvel girl? Because I, I don't think they even mention her name in it. So I had trouble. I had to go back and look at it and see what was going on in this in this uh, particular issue. But yeah, it was a lot. It's it's a lot. Can Candy Southern is an iconic character we love. I have big plans for her on my show later this fall. We're going to do a Candy tribute. So be prepared for that in September. <laughs> but we'll get there in a while. I love this character. 
I also adore Lorna's like disdain for Alex when they're in the, in the ship. Like she's so annoyed with him. And it's, it's kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. I kind of love mastermind though, too. He just seems like he's having a good time doing all this stuff. Cause he'll do it to anybody. Even the people that he's hanging out with in the brotherhood. <laughs> There's that image of uh, where Eunice the Untouchable is holding Candy Southern and she's going insane. Uh, and then Mastermind looks so nuts. He's got like one eye. Like <laughs> yeah. he, This man uses illusions to make everyone think he's pretty all the time. Yeah. He's just, he's the only, the only guy uglier is uh, Stefan Kruger. <laughs> Isn't that what you would do though if you had a mutant power? Like the first thing would be something completely vain. Right. Everyone, look how hot I am! Yeah, yeah, and I just really I just love that he's a, yeah. You know, I, I love that he's a greasy that creep. Exchange between yeah. Mastermind and Eunice as to be like acting, right? Then they talk about how Eunice was such a great actor, like he pretended to be affected by the uh, by the illusionary snakes so that right. the money would look believe more believable. Uh, Eunice is a costumed wrestler. He definitely has some acting chops. Keeping uh, up also, the kayfabe. And this is Byrne doing his homework again. These these three characters were captured by Sentinels in the original X-Men run. They next show up in Amazing Adventures as a weird brotherhood team that fights the newly furry beast. So again, we'll review that later this year on my show. But it's fun to see the three of them hanging out. Uh, although I'm going to let Marcus uncover Blob here in a second. And he's... he's mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Marcus, do you want to keep us going uh, on page sure, 11? Tell us what happened sure. here. Yeah, okay, so we start off in the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants base, I guess, where the Blob is enjoying a sexy time sponge bath <laughs> and something that looks like Luke Skywalker's land speeder. And there are uh, four girls in bikinis attending his needs, and there's piles of food on a table nearby. And one of the girls is carrying a stack of pancakes on a flesh-colored plate, which is completely unappetizing. And then uh, Eunice, There's like a Venus de Milo in the background, and like a case of diamonds. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's really weird. It's like they miscolored that plate. And then Eunice, the Untouchable, and Mastermind are also there, looking quite joyous, as if blobby bath time is something they look forward to each day. So Mastermind's <laughs> pouring himself a drink while Eunice looks particularly comfortable. He's kicked back on a fancy chaise lounge. And then looking at this panel, I couldn't help but wonder if Eunice can somehow become touchable and then also enjoy a relaxing sponge bath. Eunice can. He can turn off the force field at will. Mm. Oh, well, yeah. And especially uh, for Blob, he's very touchable. Good. I'm glad he can enjoy this then too, because it's just it's just weird that just that they're all hanging out there while while Blob's getting the bath. <laughs> all right. So after the Brotherhood is done. Uh, bath bonding, our three villain villains continue ripping on the weak mindedness of Kruger, who has fallen for Mastermind's illusion time and time again, apparently. And we see that uh, Angel, uh, Marvel Girl, Cyclops, and, and Candy are being held in uh, plexiglass cages. And then the scene shifts to Magneto and his minion, Amphibious. They're in a cave deep under the island off the coast of the Savage Land. There's some kind of mechanical contraption down there designed to tap into geothermal energy and poor amphibious is drying out because of the intense heat. So uh, Magneto, Magneto says the geodrain machine completely sucks, but he can fix it. So he goes into full on Magneto bitch mode and uses his power to raise the lava up into a wall of fire that's just a few feet from him. And then we cut to Bobby Drake, a.k.a. Iceman, 
powered down and in his ex undies and classic ex pirate boots. He's following the jungle hermit as, as he's described Joe Smith, who is hunting a baby dinosaur so we can drain its life energies. Or as Iceman sees it, he's riding that baby dino like it's some kind of prehistoric rodeo. And you said I meant something to you, he's thinking. (laughs) (laughs) So Iceman runs up to Joe and to get an explanation about what's happening. But before he can do that, an energy blast lands between them. Magneto floats down and tells them he can't have them getting in the way while he's doing his evil shit. So Mag shoots another blast, which we never see land. And apparently Iceman escapes. He wonders who the hell Magneto is and somehow feels like he should be able to fight back. But unfortunately, he doesn't have a clue how to do that. Um, Joe Smith, also able to dodge the Phantom Magneto blast, and he warns Bobby to keep away from him. Um, Apparently, that dino juice box wasn't quite enough to fill his tank. (laughs) So he is, uh, and he's powerless to prevent himself from enjoying an ice cold Bobby beverage. I have to read Bobby. I have to read this speech if I can. As he's draining Bobby's energy, he says, There is nothing I can do to stop myself from draining the life force out of you. And why should I? Why should I deny myself the power that is my birthright? Carl Lycos may be equipped to deal with the invader who attacks this isle, but that invader has reckoned without the peerless power that is Sauron. God, I love him. He grabs Bobby, he takes a tasty sip, and then he transforms into Sauron, disintegrating his white tank top, but not his pants. <laughs> and then Sauron flies away to confront Magneto, who has mysteriously disappeared as this scene unfolded. And meanwhile, less than a mile away, Polaris and Havoc approach the island in their little ship. Polaris feels woozy, and Havoc hopes she didn't catch something in the Savage Land. The ship suddenly goes haywire, and Havoc loses control. The ship crashes, but not before they fly over a weakened Iceman. There's an image of Havoc's face uh, right as the ship is crashing. He looks so weird. (laughs) With little teeth (laughs) and like a pointy chin. (laughs) Oh, and Sauron with a short beak. Any thoughts? As he's transforming, we get him short beaked and then long beaked. Oh, yeah. Short beaked. He's like a little baby chick. Yeah, not my favorite Sauron. I I prefer long beaked Sauron. That's like the transitional Sauron, right? With yeah. some strange use of black in that artwork. But uh, like, where's the lighting source? Is he glowing or or what? He's transforming. Um, like, refresh my memory. Sauron turns into the dinosaur because he doesn't get enough mutant juice. Is that the idea? He transforms into the dinosaur man when he drains mutant energy. And then he has a a myriad of superpowers, including the ability to hypnotize you and or make you see illusions. But he does need Newton energy to live, right? Correct. He can he can like eat he can like eat dinosaurs and that's fine, but he like it's the mutant energy that he thrives on. And we never really know why. This there's a great origin story waiting to be told. I've written the story, Marvel. Call me. (laughs) I'm not joking. That's like a hat on a hat. Like he's got the the draining powers, but then also, by the way, I also turned into a dinosaur. But also, every ten years they give him another power. He has sure. uh, he has fire breathing and telekinesis now. <laughs> What's he gonna get next? I don't know, but I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> the ability so, to wear shirts. 
<laughs> if he absorbs Rogue's power absorbing power, would then he would he then be able to absorb the powers of other mutants while he's feeding on them? If if uh, if I'm remembering correctly, and I did the whole trial of Sauron, so I did a, a read through. The only time he's demonstrated the powers of the mutants he absorbs is in a case with Wolverine, where he had like a healing factor for a minute. But normally, if he absorbs, he's not absorbing your actual power like Rogue does. He's just absorbing your mutant energy, but not mimicking your power. So if he feeds on Iceman, he can't suddenly produce ice. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, in so much as these things make sense, right? Yes. Well, until he develops a new power. <laughs> super villain. Oh goodness, uh, a super villain uh, or or comic book logic and rules is always fun. Uh, <laughs> let's keep going, uh, Jason. Do you want to take us through the next few pages? All right, sure. So uh, Alex and Lorna's ship is going down, and it happens to just fly right over Iceman's head, and they crash in the jungle. Um, and then, meanwhile, we cut to Sauron flying above and he spots Magneto down below. And, um, you know, one of the things I'll, I'll mention too, is like, one of the things burns great is super dynamic page layout. Just the way he positions the panels. It's almost like he draws the figures and then figures out the panel composition around them. Although page 22 has got a little bit of like something it's sometimes really fun to read. And then sometimes a little hard to follow just in terms of his slanty panels. Um, but so anyway, so on uh page 22, Sauron uh, spots Magneto. And uh, I think he um, uh, realizes he's a threat and he comes after him. And I, Magneto has not met Sauron up to this point, correct? Correct. Because he, he does not know him. And so he comes down on to uh, to attack him. And then um, I believe he hypnotizes him. Is that the idea yep. what's going on here? Yep. Okay. That was flashy. And do you notice how long in that first panel, how long Sauron's eyelashes are? <laughs> yes. <laughs> They're so long. Yes, he's got like weird tufts of hair, and he's very lumpy in parts. Like Bird just like kind of draws the figure and just fills in like weird little lumps and little like extra muscles. And, yeah, yeah, I like the way he does it. Yes, it looks gross. Yeah, <laughs> it looks like chewed gum. Um, so uh, Magneto's hypnotized, and he's suddenly in a, I believe, a destroyed X mansion, maybe. Yeah, he he's made to believe that he's in the remains of the X mansion, being attacked by the X Men. Yes. So the X-Men are coming after him. They're being pretty aggressive. He gets a blast from Cyclops, kick from Beast. Uh, OG Marvel Girl shows up looking uh, pretty um, sinister. And he's just getting the shit kicked out of him. Um, and then we cut back to Bobby, who's, uh, he finds the wreckage of the plane. And he's pulling everybody out. Uh, he pulls Lorne out. And I think, uh, so when he uh, sees Lorne, it kind of knocks him out of his stupor. And he starts to regain his memories. Now, for, for a quick recap for listeners, if you go way back to the beginning of the Hidden Years, Bobby was dating Lorna, but she's now interested in Alex, and Bobby quit the X-Men because of this. So this is his first time seeing them since then. So awkward. <laughs> yeah, he says, wow, wow. Uh, it is, wait, it is me. Seeing you is the last piece. I've got my memory back, or at least. So he gets his memory back. This is my favorite part. So <laughs> he gets his memory back. And then the group kind of regroups and they're they're spying on Magneto and Sauron. And immediately Bobby's a dick to Alex. Like he just got his memories back like two panels ago. <laughs> He's already giving them shit. Uh, um, Alex is talking about something about, oh, Alex says, maybe we just let these two bad guys finish each other off. And Bobby responds with nice thinking there, oh, giant brain, which is such like a old timey. <laughs> old timey insult. Like, like old giant brain. I don't even think it's old timey. It's just weird. Yeah, it's just a weird, like, yeah, very comic booky, very like Stanley sort of uh, 
but it's great. Like, uh, oh, my friends are back. Oh, and I'm going to immediately be a dick to them. He's like, <laughs> That's the great you, thing too. But he's like, Alex, do you realize how much harder it is to stay in the closet when I don't have a girlfriend as my beard? <laughs> yes. The greatest thing about old comics too is like they will casually say like the cattiest, bitchiest, meanest things to each other, and then they just kind of ignore it and move on. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's uh, over the top. So uh, Sauron and Meg, well, Sauron's still hypnotizing Magneto. He's standing there. And uh, Bobby decides he's going to uh, take action. So he creates like a little ice wall between the two of them. And I believe that uh, knocks Magneto out of his stupor. And then uh, Magneto flies up. Again, some great panel layouts. Magneto flies up in the sky. And we got this great uh, vertical panel. And he flies above them. And then um, he he says he doesn't know Polaris. And uh, we get a little editor's note that... Um, that the Magneto that uh, encountered her before was a robot, which is great. That's so, again, <laughs> that's so go back on the show to the 60s stuff. Polaris first shows up when Mesmero has built a city of mutants and he summons Polaris as the daughter of Magneto. Her The original title is Hail, Queen of Mutants. And there's a Magneto running around that several issues later is revealed to have been a robot. So Polaris is like, wait, what the fuck? I thought you said you were my dad. But that's it's it's just pulling back into that old continuity. So this is canonically Polaris's first meeting with Magneto uh, as an adult yeah. woman, at least. I also love Magneto's uh, carrying a gun. Carrying <laughs> like an old timey, like <laughs> World War II gun. It's uh this is part of his creator costume. He has like a, a, like a harness that taps into his magnetic energies and allows him to shoot blasts for some reason. There's really no explanation ever given, but this is, this is consistent with his appearance during this era. What was that, Marcus? On what does he do with the gun? He shoots magnetic energy. What are you shooting out of his hand? hand though? I know it's dumb. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, in the in the scuffle, Sauron takes to the sky, goes after Alex. Again, we get the great uh, concentric circles on Alex from above, and uh, he goes after Alex, and then um, Alex. Uh, Alex turns and starts attacking Magneto. He kind of adores Sauron there. And then um, Polaris starts getting woozy. And uh, Bobby asks uh, Lorna, what's wrong? We then see Magneto in like this fiery inferno of like molten lava because he was in this geothermal base before and he's now manipulating the lava into his attacks. Uh, Patrick, do you want to keep us going? Tell us what happens next. Well, yeah, so that that's a, another lovely page of him blasting, you know, molten lava and havoc, you know, blasting back with his uh, concentric circles. And, uh, you know, it kind of it kind of seems like he like uh, Mr. Byrne ran out of a little time and energy because the, the, the subsequent pages kind of, you know, start relying a lot on silhouettes and, you know, the, the layout isn't as, as intricate. He. I don't know. I, I can't help but imagine that maybe he was hoping for more pages at this point, or he just started at page one and was like, let's see where this story goes. But um, that said, you know, you have Bobby and, and Lorna on the, on the run, right? Um, Bobby, they encounter Amphibious. Is that his name? And, and yep. Amphibious. Amphibious, right? Destroying his little energy projector. So it seems like Magneto, Magneto's technology He's been, I don't know, it's like a Wi-Fi network or something, right? Where he's been like <laughs> using this remote um, machine to absorb some of that lava energy, which once broken causes him to fall to his potential doom amongst the, the lava flow he himself created. 
Well, and as a quick recap, and again, we don't have to delve into this deep. Magneto fought the Avengers with his reformed brotherhood. Thor imprisoned him in the center of the earth in like a force bubble. And he escaped from that and then manipulated the energy and like went to the Savage Land and created the Savage Land mutates. Then they then they defeated him. And then he used the energy like mists of the new Garai to like form a new plot. And now he's trying to use this geothermal energy. Shortly after this, he's going to be in Atlantis doing shit. Then he's among the Inhumans where he creates another race using other technology. This is Magneto's like mad scientist, like insane era. He's he's nuts through this, this whole period of his life. What normal folk call a midlife crisis, I imagine. <laughs> um, this is right before he gets turned into a baby. So technically it's his end of life crisis. Uh, right. Or his, his first life. Um, yeah. So, you know, the, the dynamic between Sauron and, and Magneto is pretty awesome. But, you know, it felt honestly, it feels a little out of character that Magneto would be kind of trying to negotiate a rescue from Sauron and promising him you know, you'll be my new right-hand man if you rescue me now. It just doesn't seem like a... Doesn't, doesn't seem in character for him. So maybe there's something going on, you know, mentally for Magneto right about now. We theorize, the, we theorize about this on the show a lot. 60s Magneto was, like, very megalomaniacal. And then after he became a baby, he became the Claremont character that we love. Once yeah. he's once he's re-aged. So this is, this is his original era. He had like a rebirthing experience, right? Literally, yes. Un uncovered some lost memories. Um, but yeah, like so very much in character is, is Bobby's attempt to rescue him, right? Bobby like sees Magneto in danger and decides to try and rescue him by using his ice powers to, to swoop on in amidst all of the collapsing lava flows. So um, lots of silhouettes. So more more evidence that there's some rushing going on. But we uh, eventually turn to the outside of the collapsing cavern where we find um, Lorna, Dane, and Havoc, you know, seeing the smoldering pit. And then they're, they're encountered with, we're confronted with Sauron. And um, I don't know, this, the, once again, the, it seems a little bit rushed, right? Because like you see the green of Sauron blending into the green of Lorna, Dane's costume. And, you know, you could have just switched Havoc with Lorna Dane to kind of switch that up. So here's me criticizing John Byrne. I never <laughs> thought the day would come. But, um, How dare you, Patrick? I know, I know. Sacrilege. But, um, but yeah, I, I love his Sauron. I love all of the grittiness of that texture. But uh, he gets ambushed just before he's going to hypnotize Havoc and Polaris. Right, Bobby Bobby Drake shows up just in time to blast him with some ice. Um, there's a scene where we see Bobby's ice form melting. That's kind of a little bit of an interesting take, right? Where he's actually like dripping all over the place while he uh, is reunited with Havoc and Polaris. We previously um, we previously in the hidden years saw Bobby build like an ice tunnel from South America to Antarctica which resulted in him losing his memories. Now he's diving into an, a lava flow and keeping his ice powers. Like it's showing hints of like how really powerful this character is for this era, which is, you know, in the sixties, he's not as powerful as this. So it's cool to see those portrayals of him. Oh yeah. It's really interesting to be like, to look back at this story now with the whole knowledge of him as an Omega level mutant or mm -hmm. whatever, you know, where like there were hints of like how much, has this character been holding himself back the whole time? You know, like makes you think about how much 
of his amnesia was just him maybe taking a little vacation from himself. But um, putting that aside, right, we have um, we have a conversation between Sauron and Iceman and Havoc and Polaris, and that's kind of a little bizarre. But, Polaris um, says, what are we going to do with Mr. Ugly Pants? And Sauron says, if that childish <laughs> name calling is directed at me, Lorna Dane, the answer is nothing, as nothing is what I now realize I must do with you. Is that the official Sauron voice? Yeah, it's, that's... <laughs> it's fantastic. I hope the MCU is listening, because it would be... It'd be but, you know, I mean, remind me, like, Sauron... Who was the first mutant that Sauron absorbed? Was it Havoc? Havoc, yep. Right, because there's some weird kind of interrelational dynamics being played out here between, you know, Lorna, Alex, and Bobby Drake. But then you have, you know, Lorna's dad, right? So she's what and is it, she taking her boyfriend to meet her dad? I well, mean, and again, continuity deep dive. Havoc got wounded fighting the living Pharaoh, and then the X Men took him. Professor X was pre- pretending to be dead at the time, so the X Men took him to see a psychotherapist they they found in Xavier's Rolodex, and it was Doctor Carl Lycos, who then feeds on Havoc and turns into Sauron. And in the hidden years, when Xavier comes back, he's like, "Big demerits, X Men, for taking Havoc to Lycos in the first place. This was all your fault." He was pre- he was hiding in the basement at the time. So fuck you, Charles Xavier. Yeah, not everyone can be a mind reader. Um... <laughs> But yeah, so that's just a weird like dynamic of how they're all actually not fighting and just kind of like, you know, having a conversation. But once again, it seems like Burns got to finish this book off. So he sends Sauron, you know, all of a sudden Sauron realizes that he'd rather just be Sauron in, in the Savage Land, which which is cool. You know, so he flies off. Right. And then. Um, but he erases their memories first. He takes away their memory of having met Magneto here and Sauron, which, again, keeps the continuity clean. Right. Right, and it's a great setup for that Marvel fanfare of the '80s, right? I don't know if I don't know if he's shown up in the time in between those, but fair, fair listeners, we will not touch on Sauron for quite some time on my show again. And I'm very <laughs> sorry. Oh man, so much. But um, yeah, so we got um, we've got the, the this trio of X Men taking their flying convertible home, presumably, while uh, poor Amphibious uh, returns to his um non-mutate form to live an apparently miserable life in the jungle kind of sad he'll be back too don't worry oh yeah yeah i mean this i just yeah then there's a then then we move on to some epilogues right the classic we didn't see the body so therefore magneto's not dead he blasts his way out from under the rubble And he specifically mentions here, again, we're going back to the first part of Hidden Years. He was manipulating these mists from the new Garai that had healing properties. And he's he's like, I must have survived because the last of those mists are still in my system. Like, okay. (laughs) He's been huffing volcanic gases. What kind of mists are those? Oh, yeah. I don't know how he survives. Oh, he's Magneto. I mean, he's using his magnetic. is coming back. Well, these myths also made be- like Beast briefly telepathic. It- go back to the Storm episode if you want to hear more about that. It's-, it's crazy. Yeah, anyway, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, what what have they been inhaling? <laughs> um, but yeah, so so we have this uh, prologue where Magneto is vulnerable and about to be uh, pounced upon by uh, some pterosaurs, pterodactyls, what- whatever we call them these days, before we suddenly shift to uh, Under the Sea 
And uh, we have a glimpse of an undersea cruiser being uh, occupied by uh, none other than than Namor, or as we say it now, Namor. Um, and uh, his crew, very, very interesting, like, cartoony. Like, there's almost like a, a very visible shift in style for the art and inking here. And he um, has not been skipping leg day. Well done, sir. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, this just reminds me, this, this prologue just brings back memories of John Burns drawn on like the Fantastic Four Alpha Flight where he where where Namor would just show up randomly for a couple of pages of each one just to kind of bring the bring the comics together. Well and he's he had that Namor had, run too. Yeah he had a lot he had a run on Namor in the 90s as well. Yeah. yeah. Right. So yeah he's so, like a businessman in that one. But yep. then he turned all feral with the long hair and JD yep. came out yep. of it. It was pretty good. <laughs> He went from yuppie to hippie over the course of that one uh, series, right? Yep. But um, but yeah. So then, I mean, this just um, sadly it could be Monster Island the way Namor is like bouncing around here. He comes in and he he rescues Magneto before Magneto is a as a snack for some dinosaurs, you know, tossing them away with with his classic Imperious Rex announcement. Um, and that pretty much closes the uh. The prologue, which is also functioning as a well, it's an epilogue that's functioning as a prologue. We right? get this, this image of Namor cradling Magneto's like life or like helpless body. It's so romantic. <laughs> I know this. It's like a Michelangelo sculpture waiting to happen. <laughs> and then a final image of uh, the Fantastic Four, which is again, it, like, the caption box tells us specifically this picks up again in FF one hundred and two, which is way back in the early seventies. So it's the bridge between these titles. Uh, the one thing we didn't comment on that I wanted to, Bobby goes so misogynistic with Lorna right away. He keeps calling her baby and babe. Like, my memories are back. Baby, you okay, babe? Hey, babe, are you all right, baby? Is your boyfriend's over there? Do you remember me? Like, let me hold you. I'm going to de-ice and hold you, Lorna. You know, you're going to be okay? Ugh. <laughs> Leave her alone. <laughs> yeah, major time overcompensating. And I mean, I get it that it's hot in the Savage Land, but I mean, you know, just <laughs> how long has he been wearing that Speedo? You know? Uh-huh. And how many Nazi skeletons Oof. has he been sleeping next to? Yep. Yeah. Get away. <laughs> oh, Bob, Bobby needs me. Oh, Bobby. What was it like for you guys to dive into this issue? Do you have any favorite moments? Was there anything that just left you baffled? How's everyone doing? Uh, yeah, it was a lot to take in this issue. Just, I mean, we've talked about it this whole time. How much is going on in here? Um, yeah, I don't know. I liked, uh, I, I like the uh, the confrontation between Sauron and, and Magneto the best. Just seeing those two characters together and uh, fighting. And then yeah, there was that weird moment <laughs> where Magneto was like basically promising him things. But I actually think it's kind of in character for Magneto because he, he's a flip-flopper. That guy's always changing allegiances. I never, I never know what to think or how he's feeling or anything. So it's like par for the course for this guy. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it was fun to see Burns' artwork again because I don't think I've seen a lot of his stuff recently. I know he's doing like a bootleg X Men series, like continuing it, and I've seen a couple of those pages, but it's been a while since I've since I've seen that. So, like Jason was saying, I really liked some of the page layouts in here. They they are pretty dynamic. You forget it, kind of takes you back to your to your childhood. You know, his his like run on Wolverine that he did and. Some of the other books that I read with with Burn Namor was the, another one that I really liked, and we just talked the, about. So. 
the promise of this Magnetosauron battle was less satisfying than the actual battle itself. It's mostly just Sauron hypnotizing Magneto for a bit. Yeah. And there's some lava, but it's still great fun. Uh, Patrick and Jason, what did you think? Any final thoughts? I would have I was, loved it if it was just Magneto and Sauron, Sauron duking it out the whole time. Um, you know, like really like the, the front half of the book was just like a, a, a minus the hot tub scene was like a trip down my childhood just in terms of like the imagery and the art that really, you know, like impressed me when I was a, a young impressionable artist. So, I mean, some of that, like, you know, so looking at this really kind of, it just shows like his, it's, it's kind of such a interesting encapsulation of, of, of one artist's career, right? Like you could see panels and designs that like were him from his heyday, right? Like that were so good back then like the havoc and the circles, right? That was that iconic treatment that he just made his own. And, you know, I imagine Neil Adams also did some great design work when he was handling uh, havoc, but just, you know, it's like a time capsule of Burns' work, which kind of is appropriate for dinosaurs, you know? <laughs> Fair. Uh, <laughs> uh, how about you, Jason? Um, one of the things I was curious on, has it always been canonically so that Sauron is named after Sauron from... Lord of the Rings. Yes, he named himself this because he loves the Lord of the Rings. And when he first transforms into the dinosaur, he's like, now that I am evil, I'll show you, I shall use the name of the most evil villain of all time, Sauron. It's great. <laughs> so that was established prior to this book, right? That's in his first appearance. Yeah. Okay. I never knew that. I just learned something from reading this book. Um, yeah. Like everybody said, this book, I mean, it's, it's like uh, Silver Age goofiness, but done in 2000. It's interesting to see. So like, you know, Burns definitely has a style. Like in the 70s and 80s, Burns' work was cutting edge. He was like, you know, he was the guy that was like pushing boundaries. Everyone wanted to be like, you know, it was Neil Adams and John Byrne. They were the guys that were uh, ushering in the new style. And then, you know, by the 90s, the group that they had inspired, you know, your Silvestri's and your Jim Lee's and the Eric Larson's had uh, overtaken him, you know, in terms of popularity and stuff like that. So it's interesting seeing his work, you know, in 2000s with now 2000s era coloring. Um, you know, one of the things I noticed at this book is, I don't know if you remember, but in like 97, 98, uh, big two comics, specifically Marvel, went really heavy into crazy fonts. Like all of a sudden they had, because they're doing uh, digital fonts, you know, so they bought the big comic craft pack. And if you ever, if you remember, they had this thing for a while where they're doing these two uh, gatefold recap pages. You know, you'd unfold the cover of your book and you'd have like a two a oh, two yeah. page recap page explaining the last like 50 issues because they thought that was one of the reasons uh, kids were fleeing comics because they didn't know what was going on. So they have these really and it had like shit tons of fonts like it was it was overwhelming for your eyes because they were just going crazy with the fonts. So you see a little bit of this that here where they're just like slowly easing off and like calming down with the fonts. So it's interesting just seeing burn, you know a guy from prominently in the seventies and eighties doing a, a very two thousands book, which now feels a little bit dated with their, the choice in coloring and their choice of fonts and stuff like that. Um, but it's totally fun. And then writing it as if it was a continuation of a book from the sixties. So it's just like crazy anachronistic thing on, on many levels, but um, definitely fun. Uh, tons of word balloons. It's always interesting to me too. Sometimes when um, artists will start writing a book and they'll put in a shit ton of word balloons and you think like if you were an artist, like the first thing you want to do is clear out all those words to make room for all your beautiful art, you know, like this writer's crowd in your space. But I feel like a lot of artists, um, 
don't know if it's that they don't feel confident in their storytelling abilities, but they'll put shit tons of words in there. And like Byrne is just, I mean, it's, he's a product of his generation, but just so many word balloons, so many dense word balloons explaining exactly what's happening. Like, uh, <laughs> like right. you wouldn't be able to pick up. Like, I, I know I get it. I get it. You don't have to say I'm firing my blast at havoc. I see that you're flying, firing your blast at havoc. Uh, this has been an absolute delight. My favorite single moment from today, which will live on in my brain forever, is Marcus on talking about blobby bath time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what a genuine joy and uh, inspiration to hang out with each of you. Thank you for the gift of your time and talents. I'm a huge fan of each of yours, and I'm happy to consider you friends as well. We're going to put this episode out on July 10th. Uh, as we're wrapping up, where can people find each of you online? And what would you like to plug? Uh, let's go Patrick, Marcus on, and then Jason. Well, you can find me on my uh, artist website. It's called plugoarts.com, P-L-U-G-O-A-R-T-S. Um, I have a, a monthly newsletter that includes some free comics with uh, for subscribers. And that's where you can find a lot of my other uh, writings and the articles that I've written for other platforms, as well as, you know, the art that I produce. Um, the graphic novel series, which I've been crowdfunding for the past couple of years, is called a tiger's tale and you can you can read the first 20 pages of volume one for free at a tiger's tale.com that's a tale spelt like a story rather than the appendage um but you can find me on twitter at plugo and instagram at plugo arts um i'm also part of an organization called kidscomicsunite.com and we're currently working with the platform crowdfunder to bring a whole slew of kid-friendly comics and other projects to the crowdfunding platform this summer, which I'm really excited about to try and once again, elevate the voice of a bunch of other creatives that I'm certain many of you will be hearing about for the first time. Cool. Thank you, Patrick, for coming on the show. It's so good to get to know you. Uh, let's go to Marcus on next. Oh, yeah, you can check out my website at, at marcuson.com. I'm um, Darth Son on Twitter, Darth Marcuson on Instagram. Um, you can follow By the Horns. It's By the Horns comic on all the social media platforms. We uh, Our 10th issue of By the Horns Dark Earth, which is issue 18 overall, oh, I do have it. comes out soon. That's my comp copy that I held up. So, um, and then, uh, we're finishing up the run on that. We've got uh, two more issues after that. It's a 12 issues for that one. And uh, Jason mentioned he's drawing issue 12 right now. And, uh, the other thing I do is the metalheads podcast. I'm a host on that. Uh, you go to metalheadspodcast.com. Um, we do, uh, some amazing episodes. We just did top 25, uh, metal albums, uh, of 2023 at mid year. And uh, so that's going to be up there pretty soon. So you'll get a lot of uh, interesting new uh, albums to check out. Fantastic. It's great to see you, my friend. It's been a little while. I'm so happy. It has to been. Be yeah, it's great to see you too. And then uh, and then Jason. Uh, yeah, I'm Jason Muir, M-U-H-R, everywhere. JasonMuir.com, Jason Muir on Twitter, Jason Muir on Instagram. Uh, yeah, like Mark Sun said, uh, our second miniseries is wrapping up. We got a couple more issues to go by the time this episode comes out. Um, but like I said, it's it's... It's the second miniseries, but it's technically just issues 18, 19, 20. Um, and if you want to start by the horns from the beginning, volume one is available. Volume two, I believe, should be out by the time this podcast drops. It got a little delayed with some printer issues. I think it should be out by then. Mm -hmm. 
And then volume three will be out early next year. And then uh, you'll be all caught up. And then uh, by the horns, um, we're going to take a little break after we finish these couple issues. And then we'll be back next year with uh, essentially issue 21, but uh, a third miniseries. Check this book out if you have not. It is absolutely wonderful. Not only should you support indie creators, but it's uh, it's one of my favorite comics currently being published. Uh, so I'm a, yeah. I'm a huge fan. Uh, and then lastly, I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos, but you can find me online at Graymalkin PP like podcast on Twitter, Graymalkin underscore lane on Instagram. Uh, the next show coming out after this, we're going to take a break from the hidden years for three weeks and then we're hitting it hard for a little while because we're over halfway <laughs> through. But for the next three episodes after this, uh, we will not be on the hidden years. Uh, the episode coming out immediately after this is going to be a Scarlet Witch Quicksilver Toad story that introduces Archon the Magnificent, uh, who is incredible. <laughs> we've already recorded this one it's a lot of fun uh going back to avengers numbers 75 and 76 the featured guest on that episode is mr paul cornell who is just amazing uh right after that on the uh on the patreon we have another british man named paul mr paul jenkins uh, comes back on the show uh to delve into the character sally floyd from the series generation m with me and it's very special so make sure to check both of those out we have big plans i just extended the calendar into the fall uh and i'm so excited about everything that's coming up uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Patrick. We will see you back here next time on Gray Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Gray Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane.